You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Merry Christmas. I want to encourage you not only to come Christmas Eve for the special uh, time of worship, but I'd like you to pray about who you might be able to bring with you. Um, to share that time of worship and to hear the, the Christmas message and the gospel tied to the incarnation of, uh, of Jesus. And so it would be wonderful to see you know, the place full and aha moments where people have moved from darkness to light because they understand for the first time what, what Christmas is all about. Christmas is an exciting time of year. A couple of weeks ago, I had the chance to be in the woodlands in the Market Square, right there in front of Tommy Bahamas. And you know, right out in front of it, there's that little fountain. And there was a little boy. He must have been eight or nine months old. I don't know exactly, but he had just learned to walk. And so he's kind of wobbling as he takes this step. His mom's sitting watching him, and he's finally about 10 feet from the mom, and that's probably you know, as much independence as he had ever known. And so this little guy is just taking it all in. He sees that monstrous Christmas tree in front of him and the lights, and you can just see in his face all the new information that's being you know, flooded into his mind, and, and it's just this magical world for him. And then he turned his eyes from the tree to the, to the fountain, and that just captured his attention as the water popped up, and he, he began to move towards it with this giant grin on his face, and he gets in front of it, and it disappears. And so he's looking for it, and it pops up again, and it just tickled him to no end. And so it's one of those moments, you know, that they're captured on YouTube every now and then, where you got this little guy just laughing his head off. He is just so enjoying watching this water move, and he'd see one disappear and another one start, and so he'd move toward it, and then he got brave enough to actually reach out to touch it. And uh, it was interesting to watch him experience that sensation for the first time because it came up. I don't know what he expected, but uh, I think he expected to actually be able to take hold of it because he reached and it just slipped through his fingers. And the smile disappeared for a second, and then it came back, and then he realized that, ah, you know what, I can, I can hit this and I can move this. And he was just captured by playing in this water. And I started to think to myself, you know, it's a shame that familiarity with things removes our fascination with it. We grow up and we're taught what we think is all there is to know about water. We learn that it's H2O, that it, you know, reveals itself in a, in a gas, as steam, and a solid, and as a liquid, and that it's required for life, and it covers the vast majority of the earth, and we kind of File it away as to say, you know, understand all there is to know about water. And the fascination and the wonder of it just kind of disappears. You know, the truth is that happens with Christmas too, doesn't it? The familiarity of all the Christmas celebrations kinds of takes away the fascination and the wonder with what we're actually celebrating. It happens not only with Christian, it happens almost with all of God's revelation to us. As we study it, we learn it, and we think, I got it. And Paul the Spirit is wanting us to take a closer look at grace because I think he realizes that once you've defined it, grace is unmerited favor. 
you know, it's our getting what we don't deserve. We have a temptation to think that we got it. I understand it. Um, I'm ready for whatever life has in store for me. And what he's trying to have us realize is that grace is something we can grow in our understanding of every single day. And I think he's really warning us as he peels this onion and has us understand the fullness of God's grace in our life as to what he, uh, Paul is challenging with us with his in Titus is that you need to keep discovering, you need to remain fascinated, you need to be captivated by what it is that God has done and his work in our lives through grace because if we don't understand grace, we really don't understand God's plan for salvation, God's plan for sanctification, God's plan for our glorification. Because the apostle Paul pulls the veil back and he has us understand, having really just challenged us to this point, that Christians' sound doctrine is to produce self-discipline. Faith is to bear fruit. Our beliefs are to be manifested in our behaviors. And what Paul has said to this point is if that's not taking place, you fail to understand the dynamic of what doctrine is supposed to facilitate in your life, the impact on, of truth on you. And so he's just challenged us to align our lives, to be transformed into the image of Christ. And then he pauses for a minute because he wants us to understand that though I'm challenging you to change, you need to understand the source of that change. Because if you think it's something that you go out and do for God, you've failed to understand how God really works. That it is God's work in us, not our work for God, that transforms us, that reveals Christ's likeness in us. And he wants to make sure that before I go forward, you really understand that this whole Christian journey, that everything that we've talked about and everything that we're going to talk about is all about the grace of God. And so if you open your Bibles with me this morning, we want to look at verses 11 through 14 in Titus chapter 2. And I've entitled this, The, the Face of Grace. God says this, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Pray with me if you would. Lord, we come asking for your help. Uh, this text tells us that you instruct us, that you teach us in the truths of grace. And so, Lord, we pray that you would be true to your word, that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts, that you would give us a fresh understanding of what grace is and how it is manifested in our lives and how you work to reveal yourself to the world through your children. And Lord, may we leave just absolutely fascinated once again with the truth of your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're outlining the text uh, <clears throat> this morning, verse 11, we see that grace, 
saves us. Verses 12 and 13, grace transforms us. It transforms not only our present life, but our future life. And then grace, in verse 14, unites us in Christ. Paul is really making it clear that only as we grasp the full theological significance of God's grace will we ever understand how to do the work of God. So he's called us to be Christ-like, and now he's reminding us how we become Christ-like, is immersing ourselves in the grace or the theology of, of God's grace. Grace saves us. Grace is the source of our spiritual life. Look at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The word appeared is the word epiphany. Epiphany, and it's the word we get our word epiphany from. And now, when you have an epiphany, what happens? It's as if a light goes on. It's as if you finally have understanding to something that you haven't been able to figure out. It is as moving from um, you know, darkness into light. And that's what Paul says is taking place in the incarnation of Christ. Grace has appeared. The world has been given an epiphany, a moment an opportunity to see and understand who God is in the incarnation of Jesus. And he is making reference to that incarnation, to God taking on flesh and blood and making himself visible to man. And this is what we have been challenged by Paul to this point, that we are to reflect Christ. And he says we are to reflect Christ because Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is God. So... John wrote about this in great words. And isn't this kind of cool that right before Christmas we get this? That's just kind of the sovereignty of God again. You know, we get almost this Christmas message. John chapter 1, verse 14, the apostle John said it this way. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of God, full of grace and truth. Grace came in the person of Jesus Christ. Christmas is a story of God's grace, that God would love us enough to leave the comforts of heaven, to incarnate himself, to become a man, and then to live a perfect life and go from the cradle to the cross, paying the price for our sins. And this is the message, for the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to what? All people. And that is the same message delivered to the shepherds on that Christmas morning. And since we're so close to Christmas, let's pause and let's actually read that Christmas story once again from Luke chapter 2, where we read these words. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. That was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field looking watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, 
and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angels a great multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. You know, grace was given a face in Jesus because this was no ordinary child. This was Emmanuel, God with us. Colossians reminded us, and we just studied it, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God is made visible in Christ. Now, that, that's amazing, isn't it? That's amazing grace, that God would choose to show us himself and to reveal himself like us. Because this was the God-man. The invisible God became visible in Jesus. Now, when, when we had our first child, Tammy and I, you really do look forward to that first moment when you actually get to give a face to the name. Because you've been praying for this baby, and you just don't know yet, you know, what it's going to look like. Uh, and it's a pretty miraculous moment when they're born into the world, and you, and, and you get to actually see that little one. Now, I want you to imagine, you know, we read the Christmas story, and we kind of, story and we kind of sterilize it. But I want you to imagine Mary and Joseph. It's, you know, they're in uncharted territory. They're giving birth to who? God. You know, you're kind of wondering, you know, will this baby glow? You know? You don't know. It's like, what is the God child going to be like? You know, I thought to myself, you know, will, will this child be like Superman? You know? How fast will he be able to crawl? Or will he crawl? You know? You kind of wonder that... Once he appears, you know, the first time that baby stretches, will he just become a man? What's the journey going to be? What's it going to look like? The, the wonder of it all. What was unknown to Mary and to Joseph. And it was all just this journey of grace that God would have given them the opportunity to be a witness of history. And now, there were another group of people that got to witness that very first moment, and that was the shepherds. And why I want to focus on them for a minute is because we're studying grace and how grace is manifested by God. 
You see, grace manifested in that Jesus took on flesh and blood, but then those that he invited to be a part of that special moment in history. You know, I believe this was a moment in history when every eye in heaven was focused on Bethlehem. Every angel out there was, was as captivated by what was happening as, 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 as Mary and Joseph. They were wondering what is going to happen. What is God up to? And I think probably in that moment, even more so than when the, in the crucifixion and the cross, because I think at the cross, angels almost had to turn away because they understood the injustice and they saw the one that they loved suffering and dying. And I don't know that that moment held the same significance in, 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 in their attention because it had to break their heart. But at this birth... This was a moment full of joy, full of, of, of celebration. And I think they were probably a little surprised too that, that they were sent to find shepherds. Now, why would that be surprising? Because, you know, shepherds weren't the most highly respected people of their day. You know, they were, they were dirty, and the religious world kind of looked down on them because they weren't able to keep all the ceremonial aspects of the law. And they weren't the people that you would necessarily expect to be invited to a front row seat on the incarnation of God. You would think it would be religious or political leaders. But Jesus, God, brings shepherds to look into the face of grace. And that was an act of grace because his entire life, what you see is that Jesus repeatedly reached out to the disenfranchised, to the poor, to the weak, to those that society had rejected, he embraced. And from his birth and the Christmas story, he wants all of those, all of us who think that we don't measure up, that God wouldn't be willing to accept us, that the unacceptable were invited and included in this pinnacle moment in history, God's grace reached out to those to remind through the generations when this story is read that it is the unacceptable that God accepts. Because that's who we all are. And you see, that's what the story of grace is. The story of grace is our recognizing that we are unacceptable to God, that we are sinners, that there is nothing about us that is endearing to a holy God, and yet God in his grace chose to embrace us, to accept us, to do the work for us that we couldn't do. For the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. You see, that salvation can't happen apart from an understanding of grace. Because as soon as we think there is something that we must do, we fail to understand grace and we fail to understand the work of God. And it is in coming, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt, that I am unacceptable, that there is nothing I can do. I can't be good enough to make myself appealing to God, acceptable to God, and it is grace, and it's God's work that embraces me and accepts me in my brokenness and makes me whole through faith alone. That's grace. Ephesians, Paul again writes there, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There is absolutely nothing we can do 
to save ourselves. God has saved us through his work and his work alone. And when we try to add any of our works to it, we cheapen grace and we tarnish the cross because we have no part. And that's what makes it so miraculous, that it is a free gift given to us by God. It is an epiphany created by God for us. He gives us revelation. He gives us understanding. And we then walk in the grace to become the people that he has called us to be. For by grace are you saved through faith. We are saved by faith through grace in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. From cradle to the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection is what secures us and gives us spiritual life. Titus speaks of this grace in chapter 3 of his writings. Again, I want to share this. He says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. <clears throat> by the washing and regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us, richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Grace is not grace until we understand that there's nothing we do to earn it. And the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now, in the gospel account of the birth of Jesus, the angel declared that I bring you good news for all people. Now, what, what does this mean? Does this, is this some universal salvation that God has offered? As you, as you take this in context to the book and the whole scripture, Paul has just addressed different groups of people that he's challenged to do evaluation. And then as we go on and we'll, and we'll look at the text today, he has made a people for himself. And without spending all morning talking about this, what this is actually saying is there will be people of every kind as a part of the family of God. So all people, there is a message that all people are being called to God. It doesn't mean that all people will be a part of the family of God. So the good news is there will be people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in heaven and a part of the family of God. And so the family of God is a diverse family made up of every type and kind of person, rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, are a part of the family of God. So the news is, is it's declared to everyone, and all whom God calls to himself become a part of the family, and that is inclusive. It touches every people in the world. So the grace of God saves us, and the grace of God transforms us. Look at verses 12 and 13. Grace transforms us, not in the, just in the future, but in the present. It says, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You know, when we think about salvation, we oftentimes think of it in some future tense. That, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting saved so I can what? 
go to heaven. You know, but Jesus speaks of salvation really in light of relationship, and this is eternal life that you might know God. And that is something that happens present tense. In the present age, God is revealing himself through the transformation, through the sanctification of the work that he does, again, by grace. We are saved by grace. We are transformed by grace. And that grace, this scripture says, trains us to live in the present age godly. And so this this transformation that takes place is grace gives us the capacity to say no to renounce certain things that are not of God, that are not eternal. And grace gives us the power to say yes to the things that are of God and are holy and are righteous, that apart from God's grace, we would have neither the ability because to say yes or no to the right things because we'd have been saying yes to the wrong things and no to the right things because we were slaves to sin. And so when we find in our lives the ability to start to respond to the, to the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, and we're able to actually say no to things that we know are offensive to God, that's grace. And when we're able to say yes to the things that are honoring to God, that's grace. Because before grace entered the world, we were slaves to sin and we had it completely reversed. We were saying yes to the things that offended God and no to the things that honored God and we were stuck in a pattern that just repeated itself over and over. And so Jesus says, hey, this transformation is a work of God's grace and it's something that's taking place in your life and grace is teaching you and training you to see the world from God's perspective and live your life in a way that honors Him. So grace gives us the power to say no to ungodliness. Now, ungodliness is a pretty broad term. But in a sense, it's this. In light of grace, the ungodliness that I believe he's drawing attention to is when we try to control or do things in our own power. So the essence of what Jesus is saying here, or what Paul is, Christ is saying through Paul, is he's saying ungodliness comes in excluding God. When you think you can live your life apart from me, apart from my strength, that is ungodly. What we want to realize is that growing up in our faith isn't becoming less dependent, it's becoming more dependent. And the more we lean into God and the more we rely on God and His grace, the more we understand what God's plan is for our lives. And that's where the devil keeps trying to trip us. He keeps trying to make us ungodly and making us self-sufficient. When we think that we can do something for God apart from God, we've missed it. And here's the wonderful story. God's not looking to you to do that. You don't need to feel any pressure to do anything other than what God chooses to do through you. And when we do, it's ungodly. It's not honoring to God, no matter how godly we want to call it. It has no value. And then the second thing he says we were able to say no to is worldly desires. Sinful lusts and the values that the world tries to get us to embrace that have no eternal value and are rooted in self Fulfillment, satisfaction, and lust. And so grace is manifested in our lives when we are able to say no, when we're able to renounce, when we're able to put off the things and the thinking 
and the ways of the world. And then grace is manifest to us when we are able to say yes to the work that God is wanting to do in our lives. And this is shown in three ways. Grace empowers inward self-control. Grace allows us to actually be able to resist following the lusts of the flesh. <clears throat> and those will always be there. One of the things that God doesn't sanctify is our flesh. And so our flesh is very actively warring against our spirit. And it is wanting and causing us to, to be drawn toward things that are unhealthy. And God is saying, you know, I'm going to give you the strength to have self-control over those things and to not be drawn into that and to say yes to godliness and no to ungodliness. And the second thing is grace empowers an outward righteousness. This is, Paul uses the word upright. Living involves actually living a respectable, honorable life. It allows you to actually live in an honorable way, to choose to do the right thing, to keep your word, to be a person of integrity, so that you have a reputation. If we go all the way back to, to elders, you have a reputation that's above reproach. This is the work of God. That testimony is God's grace manifested through you to the world externally. So the good that people see in you is really just the grace of God at work in me. And so I can say and confess, any good you see in me is Jesus. Any bad you see in me is me. And it's me choosing not to draw on the grace of God to be the individual God's called me to be. Because the beautiful testimony is God has given us the grace to walk in his light. And then he says this, grace empowers an upward godliness. That's a godly life that includes, that's a life that includes God in everything. This is becoming a 24-7 worshiper of God. It's recognizing that all of life is sacred. That the secular and the sacred doesn't exist. Every act that we make is an act that gives us an opportunity to honor God. And we want to live in tight relationship and we want to live in, in complete dependence and submission to the Spirit's work in us so that it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And this is the work that God is talking about, that grace does in our lives. And so grace not only saves us, grace sanctifies us, and it sanctifies and transforms our present life, but also our future hope. Grace transforms the future that we know is ours. It says in verse 13, he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the moment Roman 8 speaks of that all of creation is waiting for. When Jesus Christ returns and puts everything back in order. When sorrow and sadness and disease and death and brokenness is put away. Because there is a day when Jesus will return where every heartache Will be healed. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes don't you get weary? I think this is why the scripture says don't get weary of doing good works. Because sometimes you feel like, wow, you know, is it making any difference? You know, and sometimes you just kind of want to pull back and just 
wait. Say, God, you know what difference does it make? And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, don't get discouraged because in the end, you're on the winning team. What you're working towards in, in, in being a light to repel darkness, that that darkness is going to be repelled. That in the end, no matter what the news reports of ISIS's advances, ISIS is going to, to end. And all the heartache and all the pain and all the brokenness and all the terrorism, it's going away. <clears throat> I, was, uh, I was interacting with uh, Chuck today. He's, he was uh, going up to visit a friend who's dying of cancer. And uh, we've been praying for, for this, this man because he's you know, a minister of the gospel and, and uh, really, really in a, in a terrible, ugly fight with cancer. And uh, you just, yeah, I hate seeing that. And, uh, you know, as a pastor, you get invited into a, to a lot of situations that are just, you see the face of sin as well as the face of grace and how people are able to walk through that. And when you're in the midst of that, you know, you understand the Apostle John's prayer to say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Uh, because when you look at the fruit of faithlessness, of sin, of what life is apart from God, it's ugly. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that this world that we live in is not our future. That there is a day that Jesus will return and there is going to be perfection brought back to God's creation and back to us. And so we live with a hope, we live with a confidence that we know that one day, all the sorrow and all the brokenness and all the pain is going to pass. And we will get to experience life in a way that here's, here's, here's the amazing grace that we can't even fathom. Because all we've known is brokenness and sin and this fight and this battle and this struggle. And we've watched friends die and we've seen the horror of terror and 9-11 and we've had to, to live in the presence of evil. But grace upon grace, that is not the future. And I think what the Apostle Paul is reminding us is when Jesus will return, there is going to be a future that is yours, that is beyond your comprehension, because it's not even something that we can fully fathom. That's the goodness of God. That's the future that God has for us. It is one with no sorrow, no pain, no tears. And it is coming in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2, 13 says this. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we live with an expectation that God may return any time and that all the heartache and all the sorrow and all the brokenness will pass and we will actually step into a future that's beyond our ability to even understand how good and great and glorious it will be so we live with that hope and that confidence. So grace saves us. Grace transforms us in the present age and in our future hope and understanding of what the future will hold. And grace unites us. Verse 14, it says this, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession 
who are zealous for good works. In Christ, God is building a family, a people. And as people come to faith, they become a part of the family of God, and this is a family that is made possible by the work of God. We are made acceptable and embraced and adopted by God as a result of the redemptive work of Christ. Now, this is a great word here. The way we are put into the family of God is he says we are redeemed. Now, this basically means redeemed is bought with a price. It's the same word used for slaves being purchased out of slavery. And the picture is this, is what he is saying is that Jesus has paid the price for your sin, redeeming or reconciling you, purchasing you out of slavery and into sainthood. You've been made perfect by the work of God. And you are in Christ. And now in Christ, this people are to reflect the heart of God, the values of God. And so there is an individual and there is a corporate expression and part of the glory that God wants to bring to the world is that when he has come to save all people, this side of heaven, those people ought to get along because we exist for the glory of God, not ourselves. And in this family... In this people, which, which goes way beyond his own people, Jesus didn't come just to save the Jews, but Jesus came to save all people, to, to bring together, to unite in one body all the diversity and creativity of this creation expressed in humanity. And so because of the redemption, because of the work, because of the grace of God, we become a single people, what? Zealous for good works. Those of you who know me know I am a, how do I say this without embarrassing myself? I I just enjoy Hallmark movies. I enjoy Hallmark commercials. (laughs) They just kind of remind me of the the glory of the, the day. It's like, hey, things always work out. So, you know, Hallmark has been showing a lot of Christmas movies, and we've been recording them at our house. And uh, just recently, there was a movie about a, uh, an advertising executive from New York City who was going to a wedding at one of her clients in, uh, in, in Colorado. And uh, her car broke down in this little town called, you know, Christmas something. <clears throat> and... She's in this little bitty town, and she's being just loved by all these small-town people. And uh, she's in the cafe with this guy that, you know, coincidentally, she's going to end up falling in love with. And um, she's just kind of taken back by how good and kind everyone is to everybody. And this guy says to her, he says, oh, that's just who we are. That's what we do. We take care of each other in this town. That's really what God's saying here. He's saying, hey, when you're part of the family of God, what we do, what we do with a zealousy is we take care of each other. And having the heart of God, it's not just our own that we take care of. We are to be the good Samaritans. We are to be those that because of the love of God, we are compelled not to drive past need, 
but to engage it and to engage it with an enthusiasm, with a passion, because we understand the power of the message of grace. That regardless what need we engage, the real need is what? For them to look into the face of grace. For them to see Jesus. For them to come to him and be transformed. And to become a part of his body, his family, his people. That live in drastic contrast to the world. You see, the message that Paul wants us to get is grace touches every aspect of our life. It saves us, it transforms us, and it unites us around a purpose. And that purpose is the lifting up of Christ, revealed through the good works and the character of Christ in us. And that the only way we become the people God's called us to be is by grace alone. It's not how much work we do or how hard we commit or how faithful we try to be. When it is anything about him, we're talking about the wrong thing. Because it's not about I, me, or mine, and the grace of God is about God, not us. And when the work brings attention to ourselves, we've failed to recognize where it's to lie. I want to close by telling you a story about an, epiph- an epiphany. Am I saying that right? Yeah, about grace appearing. That's one I've told before, but I don't think most of you have heard it. Um, God teaches me a lot about himself through my kids. I don't know if that's true for you, but I think it's true for most of us who've had children. Um, one of these moments occurred several years ago when Andrew was just a little boy and we were going outside to play baseball. Now he was about five years old at the time and we had a little backyard and so as I went outside and asked him, I said, Andrew, I said, uh, who do you think is going to win today, me or you? And without even thinking, he says, me. And I was like, well, you know, what makes you so sure? And he says, well, dad, I win all the time. And that, that was true. And so, you know, I started to think to myself, I said, you know, maybe I've kind of let this go a little bit too far. So we get outside, and I say, Andrew, I said, who do you think is really the better baseball player, me or you? And he kind of, you know, kicks the ground a little bit, and he says, you know, Dad, I I, I beat you every time. (laughs) And so it became clear to me that it was kind of time to pull the curtain back, you know, for an epiphany to occur. So I said, "Uh, Andrew, would you... uh, go out there, and I said, I want to ask you a question before you pitch me the ball. Do you think your dad can hit the ball over the fence? This is not a large backyard. And he says, well, you never have. And I said, and true. So I said, let me ask you, I said, do you think dad could not only hit the ball over the fence, but over the house beyond the fence? Now, that was beyond his comprehension. He's like, no way. We can't do that. So I said, pitch me the ball. So he pitches me the ball, and by God's grace, I did not hit a ground ball. But that ball sailed up over the house and out of sight. And there's my five-year-old son standing in the middle of the backyard with his jaw down around his waist just going, wow. Now, he never saw his dad the same way after that. 
So later that evening, I was reflecting on what had happened. And uh, it's as if God sat down next to me. He kind of said, Galen, how often do you see me the same way Andrew had viewed you? thinking I'm only capable of doing that which you've seen me do. And I'm starting to get a little convicted. And then it's as if God leans in closer and says, do you want me to wow you? Now here's the beauty. God extends that invitation to every single one of us. He wants to wow us every single day with who he is. Grace has appeared. He doesn't want us to become familiar and lose the fascination with who he is. And he is so great and he is so big and there is so much of him to discover that every single day if we simply say, God, show me more of you, he'll continue to wow us. He'll continue to allow us to have those epiphanies, those aha moments. It's like, wow. I thought I knew, but there's more of grace. There's more of God, presence, power, and promise. My hope is this Christmas that you've put a fresh understanding on the face of grace, on the face of God, and understand that you are freed from the need to do anything other than by grace embrace him. And let him move and work and show you all of who he is. Because Christmas is about God becoming visible, seen. And he wants you to see him as he is. And that, my friends, will never lose its fascination or awe, or wonder. But the gateway is grace. Never think it's anything you do. It is all what God has done and is doing in and through you. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.